you're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. I'm a DevOps dude, a course creator, and an open source maintainer in the world of container and cloud native DevOps. These episodes are edited down audio only versions of my YouTube live show that you can join every Thursday at brett.live. This podcast is made possible by my Patreon members. I'd like to thank all of you patrons for your continued support. It means a lot. Your podcast player should have the show notes for this episode, including links to the original show on YouTube, topics or tools we might discuss, how to support this show with Patreon, and links to get discount coupons on all my courses. You can always get those notes and links at brettfisher.com. In this episode, I'm joined by John Osborne, a chief architect at Red Hat, and Jamie Duncan, a customer engineer at Google Cloud. We had a great discussion around enterprise Kubernetes adoption, the barriers many teams struggle with, and why it's still worth solving the hard problems in enterprise teams by standardizing on Kubernetes. We actually called it the infrastructure API a lot in this podcast. If you've been someone who's been around enterprise IT long enough, you can remember those years of config DBs and all the ways we were trying to manage infrastructure. And Kubernetes is basically the new, common, non-vendor-specific API that your enterprise can depend on for managing an increasing amount of your infrastructure as we go into in this podcast. We covered so many topics, I can't list them all here, but I definitely learned some things from these two operations pros, and they have been doing Kubernetes and Docker things since the beginning of those projects. So please enjoy this episode with Jamie Duncan and John Osborne. Hello, and welcome to my show. So let's get to it. I'm excited to have some guests on the show from all over the internet. We've got Jamie, got John, he's the cloud level midnight. Fantastic little play on The Office. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, really happy to be here. So let me give a quick introduction real quick so these guys don't have to talk about themselves forever. We've got Jamie, and of course, both of these gentlemen have been around the container industry since Docker or before Docker, right? Like before it was mm -hmm. called even a container. But Jamie, he's <laughs> been working on containers since they were called sandboxes, which maybe we'll get into later. And mm -hmm. when Kubernetes was written in Python back in its original form. So mm -hmm. he's an ops person that has been doing stuff now at Google as mm -hmm. a customer engineer. What is that about? Yep. So I'm the nerd the sales guy calls when all they right. need to keep all of the customer's nerds calm and happy. Nice. i um, been doing that for quite a while. It's a fun interface for when you're a geek who likes to communicate, that pre-sales technical role is a fun one yeah. that I've discovered. Yeah, teaching and training, I imagine. A lot of talking, mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, yeah, a lot of it. A whole lot of, let's explain, Let's like we were talking about before, let's explain containers for the 36th time this month. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> like, and I thought, I, I, I distinctly remember saying to John, like in, I got 2019, like we, we can throw out the containers 101 talk. Like we're done, right? Everyone knows. And right. <laughs> the world's you gotta, gonna you gotta keep it because you're gonna get that one, you know, meeting where it's like, what is containers? Right. Oh, God. There are laggards. That's why we have that yeah. word, because yeah. there are many you of could, them. Yeah, you could roll out of bed at three AM and give that talk. Yeah. <laughs> and we have John Osborne from Red Hat. Are you both East Coast? Yes. yes. Um Tyson's Corner, Virginia right now, just about twelve miles outside DC. So. Nice. Yeah. And I um, I'm in Raleigh in the triangle. 
So the the three of us are within a half a day's drive because I'm in Virginia Beach, which is pretty rare on this show to have two guests and us yeah. all be within an afternoon of each other yeah. as long as traffic obeys. John is a chief architect at Red Hat. And the reason I got these two people on the show is a while ago, they wrote a book, OpenShift in Action. So they talked about OpenShift for an entire book. <laughs> and yeah, the first thing that popped in my head was when we had to pick the picture for the front. Man, you know how O'Reilly does all of the animal, like everything has an animal and, and Manning does art. They were yeah. an art book company back in the day. And that woman was the least creepy of the three. Yeah, we had three <laughs> options. We just like, let's just go with the least creepiest of all of them. Yeah, we and went with least creepy. It's still a little creepy, though. Still yeah, she's still, that's what I'm saying. She's still pretty creepy. Yeah. yeah, there was one that you're like, oh my God, like that's unsafe in every way you could think about it. I don't know. Sometimes creepy sells though. <laughs> like this book is haunting me. <laughs> the chapter on C group still haunts me from time to time. So, all right. Basically, we're, we're going to focus on Kubernetes, but specifically like large, complex deployments of Kubernetes. I think I probably am the least experienced in this team of three, even though I feel like I have had some of the, a lot of the battle scars from a top accounting firm to multinational security companies, but I don't do it full time. Never really have. It's always been sort of a part-time gig in the background as this stuff has happened. So I'm always looking to learn from other experts and we, we could talk for hours about this. So you both started with OpenShift years ago, or mm -hmm. you were at least interested in, in enough in OpenShift to write a book about it. What, is that, is that book going to get an update? What's the plan? Yeah, we get, we get that a lot. Well, with Jamie at Google right now, probably not getting an update. Oh, and also, not. yeah, yeah. <laughs> our sponsors were also very upset with us by the time the book was done. At least mine was, because it was, took a lot of hours. So yeah, probably not getting an update real soon. But. Yeah. The biggest part, yeah, we burned a lot of family capital to get the book done because, and John didn't travel as much as I did, but I had a one-year-old and did a hundred nights in hotels for the year that we wrote that book. And there was not a whole lot of, yeah, version two of the book yeah. may come at exception of my marriage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty much the sentiment I get of all technical book authors. Yeah, everyone I've ever talked to, yeah. The only ones that I know that are successful long-term are the ones that some, for some reason love writing books. Like they, either that or they feel so obligated because they wrote something and they have to keep it up to date. There's a gentleman, yeah. Nigel Poulton, that writes a Kubernetes mm -hmm. book and he updates it every year religiously and it's i just can't imagine <laughs> i think it sounds like it's pretty writing a book. here i mean like one of the big time things especially the first one is like you know manning has a very specific learning style and a very specific way to write but not only big picture like even very implementation wise like they want you to say mm -hmm. can't instead of cannot and, and things mm -hmm. like that and so i think when you write the first book there's just a lot of rework too it's not like we just sit down and, and write a chapter and then we're like that looks good let's just do some correcting like a lot of the chapters got rewritten many times so yes. oh yeah 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 a lot of rework yeah and, yeah yeah and that teaching style was so specific that and what we were talking about before it has completely changed the way i communicate any kind of technical concept, like uh, the way I think about explaining things has changed since doing this book in 2018. Yeah. But man, like it was like, it was a boot camp. I do not look to replicate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A lot about simplification. I'd say, I mean, Jamie was talking about like, I, I still think about it when I do presentations for customers and so forth. It's, you know, I think if you looked at a presentation I did from like four or five years ago, it'd be at least twice, maybe three times more slides than they needed to be. And probably th three times mm -hmm. more technical detail than there needed to be. And, and I think the, the learning style is a lot about 
reinforcement and simplification and things like that and actually doing. And so, yeah, just learned a lot that really helps kind of convey technical concepts and details a, a lot better. Yeah, that's that's something I'm still continuing to hone at all times because yeah. when you decide to actually teach others, and that just really is a leadership role. By the way, a friend of mine, for those of you listening, a friend of mine, if you're a technical leader or a team leader for developers, a friend of mine is actually creating a cohort-based course for technical leaders, Laura Taco. She's actually run some big engineering teams at CloudBees and CodeShip and a bunch of other companies. So for those interested, um, pay attention on Twitter because I'm related to teaching. All management jobs are teaching jobs, in my opinion. Like your job is to mentor people and help them be better than you. So I'm excited that someone's you know putting together an actual course for technical leaders because a lot of us, we all get put into positions of leadership and we're, and we're like, well, I was a good engineer. So what, what, how does that make me a good leader? <laughs> All right. I want to get into some questions around specifics of some of these distributions. And since I'm, I'm going to throw you under the bus, John, what with OpenShift, what is it about OpenShift that would make me want to use it over another distribution? I'm not, I've never used it in a production environment. So I'm actually asking for myself selfishly. People ask me yeah, all the right. time, like why OpenShift? And I don't really have a good answer other than Google it. <laughs> yeah, so, so right now, the book itself, it's based on OpenShift 3. OpenShift now is, is version 4. And I think in the three days, it, it really was, you know, we were saying it's like enterprise Kubernetes. That was like the big thing. You know, it was like we were taking Kubernetes, adding a bunch of security defaults and other things that make it more usable, other pieces that you need, packaging, the logging, the metrics, this, and so forth. Now with 4, really it's, you know, the one sentence headline I'd say is it's a, you know, turnkey platform. So the there's, we made a couple of really big architectural decisions that vary from three to four. So probably the biggest one is now that the source of truth comes from the cluster. So if you kind of look at a lot of enterprise Kubernetes distributions, including OpenShift 3, you know, it's based around uh, a lot of traditional ways of rolling out software. So for instance, with OpenShift 3, we actually had all these Ansible playbooks that would go install OpenShift for you. And they had, I think, over 2,000 ways you could configure them. And of course, you could configure the Kubelet anyway, and, and all those things. And they passed over all those things. behind my eyes now thinking about this. Yeah, yeah bringing you flashbacks. And so for four, we, we really built everything around Kubernetes and the operator framework. So everything is, if you're not familiar with the operator framework, it, you know, it's a, basically a software extension mechanism for Kubernetes. And it builds on the uh, declarative way of doing things where it says, you know, I want this basically, and then it just goes and makes it happen for you. And we really built everything that way, including the operating system. So even now Red Hat Core OS, which is our you know, semi-immutable distribution of RHEL, like even that's an implementation detail of the cluster. So when you go to upgrade OpenShift, everything updates for you, including the OS and just an implementation detail, like the logging and the metrics and so forth. But so that's really it. It's meant to be kind of a, a turnkey, autonomous kind of self-correcting platform and just really everything is kind of installed through operators and, you know, in a consistent way that'll just run anywhere. So right now we're focusing a lot on edge and kind of going some smaller deployments and, uh, managed services also is small for us, but it's our fastest growing segment. So we're really kind of preparing to transition to that, which is a lot. There's so much more that goes into that than which is Jamie knows because now he's at Google also, but there's just a lot of, it's a lot less technical and, and a lot more organizational, how you have to meet move towards managed services where it's like, this is how you're, this is your messaging. This is where you're going to help the customer. You know, you're focusing more on the workloads and importing them over and things like that than actually 
because now that now everything's more turnkey, so it's less about you know it's getting everything up and running, and it's more about let's start moving workloads onto onto the right. platform and all those things. So right, yeah, that's a lot of what we're focused on right now. Interesting. One thing I'm curious about, and I assume that OpenShift has, is there a sort of a multi-cluster, single pane of glass kind of approach? So we had something called, I hate the acronym because it's people perhaps at Rackham, but it's basically Red Hat Advanced Cluster Manager. So it's IBM basically gifted us and we've opened, we were either in the process or have open sourced it with their multi-cluster management tooling. But so we're focused on that for multi-cluster deployments, which is becoming really big for us. And we're, we built a lot of the GitOps stuff that we're doing and some of the, the policy and security pieces into uh, advanced cluster manager. So the idea is you can provision clusters right from there and they're going to have meet your compliance aspects that you need. And they're going to be set up with, with GitOps if you have a lot of clusters that works with a few retail customers and even some things that you really wouldn't expect, like I worked with gas stations and stuff, where they're like, hey, we got like 3,000 stores. And, you know, the gas station attendant is not a Kubernetes expert. So, right. you know, it needs to be turns out. And, and things like that. So, <laughs> or yeah, maybe they so, are in 2022. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe they took the Linux Academy course or something. Yeah. yeah. I'm the one that's usually getting involved with customers on their first couple of clusters and getting them that workflow that's repeatable and trying to, because, you know, we, I often talk about Kubernetes being unopinionated and you can use it in all sorts of right and wrong ways. And, you know, I think a lot of us all now are like exclusively declarative, trying to do everything declarative, get ops, all the things and all mm -hmm. that. So often it's the, the challenges that they run into that I can't easily help with is scaling problems, right? Like they did all this for one app and one, you know, in a couple of clusters, but how do they have 50 clusters? Like you're saying in gas stations and in small little environment, disaster scenarios and stuff like that. And, uh, I'm always interested in those, the, this, this new series of tools, I say newer, newer than Kubernetes itself, set of tools that allow us to manage and deploy clusters as easily as we deploy containers. Uh, so that's good. That's good. Rackham, yeah, right? <laughs> John, that's right. Rackham is rough like that. That's hard. Yeah. It, it's not great, but the, the technology is great, but the acronym is not great. But yeah, you know, what, you know, once you start moving up the stack and you start doing some of these things like automation stuff, it actually, it, it's not as exciting because especially in enterprise and larger organizations, it becomes a lot less of technical problems that you're solving and a little bit more around alignment and, you know, you're a lot of larger organizations, especially if they've been around they're you know, they have a very fixed mindset towards things like risk and compliance and, and so forth. And so you're trying to meet kind of these new ways of working and, and, you know, there ends up to be a lot of people, a lot of people discussions and things that you have, and it's not all tech at a certain scale. I don't know what that scale is, but I'm in it. So <laughs> <laughs> you found that you found that, yeah, that problem. Hurt, yeah. Well, before we get any more into it, I actually want to sort of counter this because Jamie is working at Google and we, I wanted to just talk about Anthos for a second. And because I'm actually not familiar with this product. So what's the elevator pitch? So the one that is the thing that comes off of like slide four uh, that, you know, you would get from a, a Google sales rep about Anthos isn't what I call the elevator pitch. The thing that, and I've been at Google, not quite two years, it'll be two years this summer. And the thing that astounds me more than anything about Google cloud is that we sell the things we use. So Cloud Spanner, which is this giant globally available relational database with ridiculous statistics, inside Google, it's just called Spanner. And it's the mm -hmm. database that drives Gmail. And Cloud Storage, well, it's just a very thin, you know, is the storage that drives Google Drive. 
And so we take these things that we build them internally to solve our problems. And then we say, oh, there's value in that. So then we figure out a way to present it out to customers for them to consume all the way down to the AI algorithms that we use for the pixel phone lines, those algorithms that make sure the transistors are all on the board and make sure there's no dents or scuffs on the phone coming off the line are available as a product that you can go yeah. and build your own algorithms around. So all of that to say is, is what Anthos is to me. And it, it is our multi hybrid cloud, blah, blah, blah. The way you know, you have one ops control plane to, to do all of the Kubernetes everywhere. But what it is to me is that we took all of that institutional knowledge inside Google about doing ridiculous amounts of work at ridiculous scales that no one else has. We locked a bunch of engineers into a room with a whole bunch of pizza and Mountain Dew and said, figure out enterprise architecture for the next five to 10 years. What came out the other end was Anthos. So it is Google's take on what enterprise computing should look like in a multi-hybrid cloud environment for the next five or 10 years. And it's got, it's very googly, like right. it has its own, like the, when you go interfacing with it, it feels like you're dealing with Google a little bit. And some people have that learning curve where they're used to other things and they're used to just sort of enterprise workflows. And a lot of the workflows aren't very enterprising. It's very Google centric, which I find comforting now, but I've also got you know, almost two years of learning curve to make me comfortable with. Right. Right. And yeah, that's so the thing about the way we think enterprise is going to be. Okay. And we got, of course, the questions we always get like one versus 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 versus. And that's fair because <laughs> we've all got to make a choice at the end of the day, but I'm going to try to save you all from it and say when, um, choosing Anthos, Tanzu, OpenShift for Kubernetes, I'm just going to say, what's your ecosystem and save these two, yep. the expectation of going, aligning with their company, which they I'll should say, do. Or say the same their, thing. Yeah. yeah. I'm saying that exact same thing in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, if you're if not you're in Google, they were <laughs> like at Red Hat, I, I do a lot of the competitive customer meetings, but I would say most of our engagements are not, there's not bake offs or competitive. It's, it's like just building momentum and inertia and, you know, helping customers port the workloads over and helping solve some of their technical challenges and business problems and so forth. But it's usually not, Hey, we have to compare you know, distributions and, and platforms and, and so forth. There's right. it's yeah. Yeah. Occasionally, occasionally, but I do remember doing that a lot, like 2015, 2016 Kubernetes was early days, Docker enterprise or whatever it was called back then was beta. You know, we were all still looking at Mesos. Like, do, is that the contender that we all should be looking at? And I can see like those early days, but I mean, from us insiders' point of view, it's not like OpenShift isn't going to be here in five years, right? Or it's not like Google's going to go away in five years. Right. So yeah, I think like a lot of customers now they they make decisions that are you know aligned with their values a lot more because you're essentially like placing bets on technology because you know five years ago or six years ago that what you're talking about was the default way to buy enterprise software. You could look at Gartner or something because it, and people look for spreadsheets of, you know, do you support this versus that? But when you're investing in technology now, I think it's just the iterations going so quickly that the spreadsheets are going to be thrown out next year. So why look at us? Why look at features? You're kind of placing yeah. more bets on where you, where you think this is going to be an iterate to in the future. So yeah. Yeah. Hey, how Mirage's your question. It kind of has two levels. There's kind of two forks in that road because there is a pretty clear decision. If I'm going to do like 
DIY Kubernetes, if I'm going to roll my own Kubernetes distribution versus use one of the vendor supplied and off the shelf tool set, I have to decide whether I, whether my business problem needs me to be a creator of that technology or a consumer of that technology. Mm-hmm. And I got to make that decision. I got to make that decision pretty early. There are use cases where I need to create an incredibly customized Kubernetes environment or incredibly customized whatever environment to fulfill my business needs. Those use cases are incredibly rare. And I promise you almost never work on them. Like your data is what's unique. Your problems are incredibly common. So once you decide that and you find yourself looking at all the different Kubernetes distributions, you can succeed with all of them. Like I've kind of got the, the Kubernetes EGOT here. Like I've worked on OpenShift and Tanzu and Anthos. You can do all of them at scale and find success. You know, the trick becomes taking the, the skills that you have in your group and putting them into play. If I've got a mountain, if I have a crack team of VMware superstars, using Anthos doesn't make a lot of sense because they're all starting from scratch. Whereas they could absorb the workflows in Tanzu way faster to find success. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, point. so we get a lot of customers and I'm sure you do too, where it's like, there's, you know, these platforms like OpenShift is very holistic now. It does a lot of things, but it doesn't do everything, right? And so sometimes there's partners that come in to do things like we did acquire StackRux, but you know, say there's a lot of partners that do container scanning and you know, might be a server smash overlay or one of these things that, that do some of these other kind of fill into gaps and customers will ask me, okay, well, which one should I choose? And I tell them like, you really need to choose the one that's really going to partner with you and, and work at your cadence and ignore the, yes, you might have minimum technical requirements. It needs to meet those, but don't look for some golden feature. Look for the, the, the people who are really going to partner you and cannot yeah. move with you and, and help you move along. Yeah, if you're one of my customers that has been on GCP for, you know, a while and you're consuming it and your ops teams have that skill set, Anthos is going to feel great because it's going to use the verbs and the nouns and the concepts that you're already used to. And you can spin up Anthos in 20 minutes across four different places and get there and have this incredible solution that's up and ready to roll. But if, you know, if we're going to spend the first 20 minutes of the phone call talking about what G cloud is, you're not ready. Right. And, and that's when it's time to look at other ideas. If that's in, then in your timeline. So, yeah, so it's not choosing it's they, like you said, like 2016, 2017 is like, which one's best. And we're all sort of fighting for that turf war. Yeah. Right. Now it's like, which one's best for this situation and find success, you know, f- use your skills to find success. You can get there with all of them these days. Just hopefully none of my sales reps are listening in. <laughs> well, and that's the thing too, is there's no reason why you can't have both. And in a large right. enough organization, you're probably got multiple teams that are choosing their own path. And you, I mean, I was recently working with a very large international bank and they have a very clear path for anything they onboard into Kubernetes. And it actually made me happy because I, as an implementer of random technology for random companies, you know, we have dealt with, I, I, for 30 years, I've been trying to find something that was at least standardized. And that's why mm-hmm. I, what gravitated me to Docker in the first place was I saw an opportunity for a universal packaging and distribution system that we had never had before in ops, right? Mm-hmm. And I came from that sysadmin background. So it spoke a lot to me. And then Kubernetes was the potential for that scenario to work at another layer of abstraction, even beyond that, and oh, that we could all start describing, and you're talking about moving workloads, right? Like before Kubernetes, moving a workload from a data center to the cloud 
there was so much complexity. There were oh, yeah. so many. Like you were sacrificing yeah. goats. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. You needed like two pounds of duck feathers and a voodoo doll. Like, was yeah. I, I still, you know, a lot of people, a lot of organizations, they still try to copy their on-premise stuff into the cloud. So it's like you, you know, they're still hung up on IP whitelisting and things like that. So, you know, they, you get into where it's like, well, you know, our LDAP has, you know, 400 rolls. So we're just going to forklift those 400 rolls <laughs> right. over. And that's how we're going to do our ground management and things like that. So yeah, there's, yeah, I think one of the interesting things about Kubernetes is as people, as customers have moved to containers and Kubernetes in general, it's a good time to do a lot of things that you weren't doing before. And, you know, customers always try to find that balance of, well, I can build a better CI CD pipeline. I can do cloud better. I can do these things, but I also need to deliver on something too. And, you know, find the balance between those two. Yeah. Yeah. It is a a great opportunity to lay some rocks down that you've been carrying for so long that you (laughs) forgot you're carrying them. Right. Yeah. They move over an old Java app and they're like, well, what do I do with this bash script that restarts the server every night? And it's like, you know, (laughs) you can throw it out. (laughs) (laughs) RM dash RF. Yeah, which is, I mean, that's the kind of thing where you deal with these implementation projects and especially I would call like container conversions or Dockerizing is what we used to call it, right? Mm-hmm. And th- it's, you know, I always go looking for the easiest app first because I know that there's going to be 40 things that we didn't know until the project is in the middle of the project. And suddenly it's like that. It's, oh yeah, mm-hmm. well that that thing's got a memory leak. So we just have a cron job that restarts it every night, but only on that one yeah. server. And, you know, it's, mm-hmm. then that's the yeah. server it restarts on. And, yeah. you know, so how do we do that in Kubernetes? There's that question comes up mm-hmm. for every scenario, you know, possible. Well, these three containers that are completely unrelated, kind of all need to share and read and write to the same directory. So how do we do that in Kubernetes? Right. Yeah. And there's always fun stuff. So let me give you this I mean, to start with, and you're going to rant on this for a minute, and I hope you do, because I'm going to, so I want you to soapbox this. On projects now, I consider any new project, they're probably laggards, because if they're just now doing Kubernetes, some of them are just now doing Docker, they're, mm-hmm. you know, we're eight years in on this evolution, and they're just now getting to it. So to me, they're going to have all the problems of, we don't know what 12 factor is, we, we don't know what distributed design is. Kubernetes, like you're saying, you don't need Kubernetes yet. You need to catch up from 10 to 15 years of the evolution of computing, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. Give me some hot takes on that well, scenario. So, so Red Hat's behind two fundamental platforms. I've told some customers, the other platform is Ansible. And I've told customers, like, you really should be moving more towards Ansible right now. And then once you get better hygiene around, you know, because a lot of customers, if they're really legacy, they actually don't even know how to rebuild their virtual machine. because. They've just been maintaining right. it and taking snapshots and doing all those things. Right. So they, they don't even know where to start with the Docker files. So in that case, you know, I've, I've recommended that they move to something like Ansible and then maybe even Ansible with containers as kind of like a middle ground. And then you slowly, once you kind of build those better practices, then better hygiene, source control, all those things, more automation, then in the future, you're, you'll be more ready to move to something like Kubernetes. Yeah. yeah, you're going to pay for it at some point. There is a fixed cost for doing that sort of advancement. And John's dead on it. Kubernetes requires you to define your infrastructure in software. You're abstracting your infrastructure, you know, and figuring out how to talk to it through an API. That's what Kubernetes does. If you don't know what your processes are, you sure as hell can't automate them away. So figuring out that Ansible middle ground is that automation step. 
figuring out what my processes are so I can then automate them so I can then abstract them into the Kubernetes API. Sometimes, you know, they've got budget to do X and they don't have budget to do Y. I mean, you're going to pay for it one way or the other. You, you pay for it in time and go through, like John said, and, and let's evolve and figure out how to fast forward the evolutionary process. Or you pay for it with, you know, people and pain to get right. there. Right. Um, you're going to pay one of them. You know, what is, you know, good, fast and cheap. You can have any two. You can have two, right? And, yeah. And that's exactly where all the, there's so many customers. Yeah. You know, I think we talked to them two days ago. It was, they are an old OpenShift 3 customer point of fact. And in OpenShift 3, there is a thing where you can, before a workflow kicks off, or it may be, I think it's an OpenShift 4 too. There's a pre-hook. So before I start this thing, I can run a pre-hook to do a thing. And it, it exists because OpenShift existed before init containers. Where now, if I were designing that, I would put some logic in my init container to decide whether or not to fire this stuff off. And it was all database priming. You know, it was pumping, right. filling database updates and stuff. Well, there they sat. They'd been using these pre-hooks and it's a very simplistic logic, but it's also very not cloud native because the logic's not inside the container. You know, right. I'm not notifying the logic inside the, the binary. I've got some external source that's part of a kind of this weird limbo between CI and deployment, but it's very easy for them because they've been doing it for five or six years. And so I sat and explained to them, you know, this is how init containers work. This is why you need to do them. Here's how you stop it from happening 10 times in a row with a simple lock file or something on your database. Right. And they listened and they understood. And then they still asked for the prehook feature. <laughs> I think it is so it's actually part of the OCI spec, the prehub stuff, but I think it did get deprecated at some point. Yeah. Is they yeah. and this was in a deployment tool context. This wasn't in a Kubernetes context. Hmm. Um is this Helm, this, by the way? No, yeah. This is actually coming out of cloud build and into Google's new tool, Cloud Deploy. They want to use Cloud Deploy, but it doesn't leverage the prehooks for the cloud build users. Right. But neither here nor there. But they were faced with time or pain or money. Those are the three axes of pain that they had to deal with. And instead, they wanted the vendor to twist the metal around and make it do their old thing. Right. And we're like, well, it, it, sometimes it's a valid path. But so they were asking the vendor to pay for the pain, you know, yeah. and for our engineers to go solve the problem so they didn't have to get to a more cloud native world. Well, that that, that's an extremely common problem. I find every mm -hmm. one of the projects I've been on is usually some legacy monolith app. You know, R Rails is, you know, great example because it always has database migrations built in and there's tooling built in for database migrations. This is actually a very specific discussion on a very specific feature, but I am interested in uh, a universal approach to this because it, what's weird right now is all of these tools that are developer focused, package managers, you know, you could you could argue that the Rails stuff actually has some implementation. It has built in migrations. It actually is concerned about deployment and building in and of itself. It's amazing to me that we're in 2022 and how many of these tools have basically tried to ignore Kubernetes or anything in containers. Like they they maybe have a recommended Docker file, but that's mm -hmm. about as far as they go for developers, which yeah. is, is weird to me because it's almost like those tools should be the ones adopting all this cloud native ideas. Like to me, Rails should know about this stuff, be built in and automatically lock when it's running so that you could have right. 20 pods all potentially doing init containers and there wouldn't be any conflicts or, or doubling up of effort on the SQL database or whatever. But I don't know that that's all built in because I don't, 
I feel like these people's attitudes are just, <clears throat> it's your problem. You're the ops person. Yeah, yeah. We're the developer. Yeah. Right. And the Kubernetes, you know, containers were this developer revolution that just gave the ops teams four new artifacts to deal with. <laughs> and and right. they're like, well, go figure out how to deal with it at scale. It works great on my laptop with nobody else around. Now figure out how to scale it up to 10 million users a day. Go for it. Right. And we're, it's, it is very much an evolutionary process and like always, it always blows my mind. So uh, this question is kind of, I think I know what all our answers are going to be, but how long do you think the container technology will stand in the industry? What is the, you know, everyone wants to talk about what's after containers, what's post containers. I don't like serverless is the answer because to me, serverless is greenfield only. So I always answer with, there is no future. We don't know the future. It's just containers and proxies all the way down. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I like the idea of serverless built on containers in, in a lot of ways too. Like I've worked with customers where it's like they want to modernize and it's like, well, you can actually use serverless to modernize because, you know, they might have something that runs once a day, right? And that used to be this batch workload type of thing. And, and now it can be more event-driven or they're provisioning infrastructure to run just for that one day, right? And now they can have something more event-driven that spins up, spins back down, leverage K-native, those types of things. I think like in general with serverless, you know, one of the things that it really hasn't promised on is like the idea that you only write business logic, like in practice, a lot of, you know, to date, a lot of serverless workloads, there is a lot of glue code that you have to write, but I'm pretty uh, excited about the uh, cloud events project. If you've seen that where it's like, it's, yeah. they're still iterating, but it's the idea is like, I can catch an event in a very technology specific way, like a little bit more agnostic. So. I can catch an event coming from Kafka, or I can catch an event coming from some log server. And the idea is, you know, I'm not going to have to write custom code for each one of those things like you would if you were in, you know, Lambda, for instance, and you wanted to connect to Kinesis or Redshift or something like that. So, yeah, you mentioned that cloud events. Is that a project? Yeah, that's remember. a part of it's under the Knative CNCF stuff. I don't know if it's officially hosted by CNCF, but yeah, it's a lot of the same people iterating on, on those. Okay. Yeah, I, I felt like I read something about it recently, and now I can't recall what it was. So, yeah. Okay, sorry. Cool. Jamie, were you going to say something? Yeah, so I've got, I'm, I get to play with this candy store that is Google Cloud. So we, we have all of these things. So I get to have a, a little broader perspective about, you know, serverless. Serverless is a fork, is, is a tine on, the, on that pitchfork of, of getting stuff done. There are going to be workloads that are good fits for serverless platforms. You know, and I take a little more abstract view there. They're going to be, if they're going to be workloads that are good fits for mainframes, I don't really, I, I try not to make that distinction a lot. I think most workloads now are good fits for Kubernetes and, or good fit for, good fit for containers, containerization and that level, of, I, I would say, because Kubernetes is probably the least important, most critical thing there. I'm a huge fan. There's a, there's an old tweet from Joe Bita talking about Kubernetes as a toolbox. Kubernetes isn't the end product. And I was, when I was at VMware, I was actually lucky enough. I was sitting across the table from Craig McClucky. We were doing an executive briefing and the customer asked him that almost that exact same question is like, what's after containers, what's after Kubernetes? And one, so one of the people that helped create Kubernetes from the outset said the, the code base is the least important thing to Kube. It's, it's not where the, the good ideas are going to stand the test of time. The thing that is the most important, the best idea in Kubernetes is that you're speaking to your infrastructure through an API. That idea is the one that's here to stay. So that one, you know, and it came from one of the guys that invented Kubernetes. 
So he doesn't care that it's written in Golang. You know, he's not one of those fanboys wearing gopher. Like, he or he may care. Hell, I don't know. I know I don't. But none of that's the important stuff. Which features are available on the API server? What it, Can HPA scale to zero? None of that's the important stuff. Those are implementation details that will sort themselves as customers need them. The thing that's most important is that I'm now talking to my infrastructure through an API. That's where Kubernetes is going to stand the test of time. So to that question, that's not going anywhere. Right. That's only going to get more advanced and more nuanced. Containers yeah, are a good quote too about, about Kubernetes helping move things from more ticket-driven IT yeah. infrastructure that, to uh, API-driven, which, you know, yep. that, and that's a big part of that, right? And yeah. What, the, two million lines ago, right? But no customer is going to adopt that. The, really, the real value of it is the API and, and the ecosystem. It's nobody's going to take on two million lines of Go, right? Start maintaining it themselves. So just the right. fact that it's open source is not inherently valuable. It's the API and the ecosystem. Yep. And so, so to that idea of what's next, I think something is next. We went from mainframes to the client server model, to VMs, to containers on this sort of evolutionary timeline of smaller Legos. We get better, pro more effective process isolation per square foot. You know, I can fit more containers into a square foot of data center than I can a VM and into yeah. a physical server, into a mainframe. That's where it is. So there's going to be some sort of more efficient process isolation at some point in the future for our industry. It's an evolution. It's not an end state. Where that's coming from, no clue. Like there could be somebody at MIT or, or in Bangalore or in Butte County Community College. I don't know where. But there is some kid thinking up the next thing. Is it going to be microkernels? I don't know. Some people think that where I inject my application directly into the kernel. Okay, cool. Maybe. I don't know. I have no clue what the next thing is, but I know there is a next thing. Three that years next ago? thing would be able to hide behind an API. If, if you look at like three years ago, it was three million lines of code and now it's two, right? Because they, they built in all these interfaces like CRI and, and CNI yeah, right. to make it more portable. And now all the innovation really happens in the community. Like I, in my early days of Cube, you look at every minor release, you'd be like, oh, they got this feature finally added and this and you'd follow it. Like, I, I don't look at release notes of Kubernetes now because that's not where the fun stuff is happening. The fun stuff is happening in the ecosystem, right? It's tech talent, it's you know, different software supply chain stuff, it's security, it's, it's service mesh and all those things and that just kind of solve those problems, but are using that Kubernetes API. So I think that's pretty powerful. Yeah, we, I think we probably all, so I think I, I have officially the most gray in this room, but so I have the scars to talk about like config DBs, right? That was the action. That was the hot thing 15 years ago. Oh right? yeah. The yeah. most amazing config DB, all my infrastructure, all in one, one database that's proprietary to some third party tool. Oh. And you know, it wasn't, it was rare unless it was from that vendor for any other tool to talk to that database. And we didn't think of APIs. We thought of the information's in a database. So you got to talk to the database and we didn't think APIs because yeah. a, a lot of the operators and sysadmins that I know didn't formally come from a developer background. And I think that when we talk about jobs and the future and like, where should people be focusing, you know, people come to me all the time that had that sysadmin ops background, not traditionally trained in development may know some scripting, right? It's kind of hard to have those jobs and not know scripting, but their job, you know, they don't, they've never written a line of, of Go code, you know, they know maybe a, a package manager or two, maybe one for Python and they barely know it or whatever, but, and well, so as were bored. Yeah. Like it took, you know, days when you had to make them yourself to get <laughs> so, something where I could run an API on it, much less know how to write an API for it. Right. 
And now it's, you know, we could all, we could probably start a clock in the corner and all of us have a RESTful API up in under two minutes. Yeah. But APIs were hard. So, and it was expensive. You know, that VM or that physical box was an expensive resource to run just to, for an API for your config files. Screw that. Just talk to the database. Yeah. Yeah. And every implementation back in the day was vendor specific, right? So every mm -hmm. time you wanted to, and this is a, a point I wanted to make earlier and to maybe start a discussion that we've probably already covered, which was a lot of these enterprises, they still want to make decisions for a decade. So when they pick a product, they're thinking a decade out and how is this product going to mature over the decade? And I, you know, all of us now we're like, it'll be, it's amazing if I get to use the same tool for five yeah. years, that's just incredible because things change so rapidly. So I don't even, to me, a decade is a sort of a, almost a, a joke because you know, a, a decade ago, imagine, imagine a decade ago, us predicting Kubernetes. There's just no way. I don't know how anyone would have done it. Maybe in theory, but certainly not at a practical level or understanding the, the, the deployment or, you know, the scope of how everyone now is interested in it. And the whole industry is now determined, you know, Kubernetes is on their front page, right? And there's this single yeah. tool, which is not owned by any one vendor that they're all happening to go against. So I feel like it's this huge win, but at the same time, it, there's a great podcast recently on, I think it's called, it's, it's by weave. It's their ops, modern ops mm -hmm. podcast. And they yeah. had some people on talking about Kubernetes adoption and some of the new, you know, stuff that's come out about Kubernetes adoption percentages. And I didn't, I never really thought of it this way and that we're basically giving developers a menu of constraints and that they have to fit in, like we're talking earlier about the, the init job, we're giving them these primitives and we're saying, you know, in all the world of software, you now need to fit your ideas into these constraints. And if you do, life is wonderful. It'll run everywhere and it should just work. But if you truly want to go outside the lines, you're now going to be back where you were, which is very proprietary, very, very, what's the word that we'd like to use in SRE? Tribal knowledge. You know, everything is very yeah. specific. There's that one person that knows how to touch that one server. Um, things that are documented. Yeah. I call it being hit by a bus compliant. That is a thing. Wait, so wait. we, okay. So we've talked about two ways of doing enterprise Kubernetes. These are products, right? We're taught, we mentioned two products really, but when you start looking at adoption of what are, what are some of the other challenges that you're seeing your customers trying to adopt? Obviously there's this huge gap. I think that's one of the big themes is there's this huge gap in knowledge from people just now adopting Kubernetes versus the people that adopted it five years ago, because they've, they're just reading, reading change logs and new people have to basically learn the most advanced Kubernetes that ever was, which is the current version. And mm -hmm. there's this huge gap of knowledge there, but what else other than knowledge gaps and like training, what else is there that you see? Is it all still people problems? Yeah, people, I mentioned the fixed mindset towards risk. So the, the idea of that before was like, Hey, when you were only on-prem and, and you knew exactly what the environment was going to look like, the environment wasn't dynamic. The idea was like, Hey, I can go through some sort of risk management framework and, you know, do all my risk management and then I can deploy it. And then it's going to run that way for a long time. And that's just not really valid in cloud because you know, cloud providers are iterating, uh, the, the, the environment's dynamic, the workloads are coming and going. And so working with them towards Yes, I can be compliant, helping do some best practice and so forth, but let's look more at, at the monitoring aspect, the runtime, not just like making everything up front, but like actually verifying that things are running a certain way. One of the, one of the big misconceptions a lot of customers have with cloud in general is, is around the shared security model, 
right? So there's, there's been a lot of studies that they say 99% of breaches are based around misconfiguration, right? And so, and a lot of customers don't necessarily have the skill sets that are there yet. So they're trying to automate and trying to do these things in a way that, like we talked about, kind of meets some of their on-premise things, make some of the security people happy, but also do it a little bit more cloud-friendly way. You know, you're focused on, you know, the assets and not necessarily the perimeters and, and things like that, that, that you have on premise. So it's kind of a culmination of all those things. And of course, building momentum and, and all those things that, that you need to you know get things out the door. But I think in the early days of Coop, one of the interesting things was we, you would set customers up with a cluster and so forth. Then it's been, you know, maybe six months trying to build out glue code for their own new CICD pipeline that they were going to do a lot way better than anything they had before and so forth. So Red Hat's actually hired a bunch of people to build out some of that stuff for customers in the upstream. So that's one of the things is we're just trying to help people get their focus on their apps and not necessarily about connecting up proprietary storage or doing all those things. It's uh, really just about making everything, all the non-differentiated stuff go away, at least as much as possible. I, I do yeah. think the people problem has changed. I, like you, you said, is it just a people problem? Like the people's learning curves and, and the problem three or four years ago, maybe before the end times, maybe before Corona was how do I retain talent? Mm. And that's not exactly the problem anymore. That is, that is still a problem, but people aren't even getting to that point because amazingly, somehow the velocity of change of most of this sort of cutting edge, modern cloud native computing stack increased while we were all working in our basements. And now I'm running into lots of customers who are the traditional fabric of the world, you know, retail organizations, you know, wholesalers, people that do various services things, but five, 10, 15 years ago, they could go find somebody, like you said, they, they were going to use this piece of technology for 10 years. It was going to, you know, they were worrying about server depreciation. And they could right. find somebody who was their nine to five and they would come in and their skill set would be valid for five, 10, 20 years. Now they're trying to hire people and their skill sets aren't valid through the interview cycle. And finding talent to execute these things, you know, so they're kind of stuck in this catch 22 of, and I had a conversation with a customer about this two days ago, maybe three, they have to use a modern tech stack. They have to adopt one because if they say they're running spring boot on VMs, no one even applies right. to their jobs. So they have to use an, a more advanced cloud native stack. But then by the time they figure out which stack to use, the people that are in their hiring pipeline, like they're changed, like everything, yeah. like the ground is moving under their feet during the interview process. I've had Literally. a few conversations, especially if they're in, they're in San Francisco, something like that, where it's a similar problem. It's like, you have to use Rust or whatever, just to right. get people to apply because people don't want to use the lamp stack or whatever. Right. Right. And I'm right. like, y'all just calm down a little bit. Like I can, like you can go solve a meaningful problem well with stuff that was around six months ago. Like you can do it. I promise. You don't have to be at the bloody edge of the knife 24 seven. It sounds fun, but let's focus on the problem, not on the, the it's, it's the same idea. Like right. Kubernetes focus, the, the value of Kubernetes is that it's an API for our infrastructure. It's not that it's written in Golang. Like let's think the people problem is shifted. We need to keep our eye on that prize. Yeah. But let's worry about solving the problem. Let's not worry 
quite so let's solve the problem effectively and solve it where it'll stay solved not solve it with the coolest shiny object that i read about on github three days ago right and there's there's this thing that we all understand when we're involved with CNCF in some capacity that there's just exhaustion of the projects and there's just, you know, it's open source, which means there's a new one every day. And mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that CNCF puts it as an incubator every day, but it does mean that there's new stuff. If you stare at Twitter for more than an hour, you're going to find a new project you didn't know about. And yep. so I like your approach to that, like talking about the people problem there and hiring problems, obviously a huge thing. The thing that I do now with customers, and I don't know that I've really nailed it, but what I'm trying to get them over, like convincing them that this Kubernetes infrastructure is worth it in so many ways. And we can list all the benefits and we talk about API infrastructure, blah, blah, blah. But I, one of the things I really try to drive into the head of the managers is that like turnover is going to increase as the population matures because newer, younger people, I mean, I, you know, I'm in my forties, so I consider myself old at this point compared to most people in tech and, you know, people that are 20 are staying in the job a fraction of the time that I was. So I assume mm -hmm. my team will rotate people, which means that the only sane way other than, you know, focusing on a, a, a streamlined hiring process is if I can use, if I can build an environment Kubernetes is one of the tools that would be used in there. But if I can build an environment that is what most modern up-to-date companies are doing, regardless of the tool's name, right, whether it's Docker building it or it's some other builder, whether it's the, a brand or a distribution of Kubernetes, doesn't really matter. But this idea of infrastructure as code, this idea of everything in Git, all infrastructure in Git, and I don't get to shell in the servers whenever I feel like just because I want to change something and driving that home with them because my assumption is in two months, one of the DevOps people are going to leave and they're going to have to hire a new person. And if they have all this tribal knowledge of bespoke design and they're, they're the, you know, they made their own orchestrator with bash, like good for you. That's great. You're really smart people. But when you hire someone every other month or every month or every week, I mean, what is it? AWS has 30,000 job openings right now. Like not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah, 30,000 every week. At this point, yeah, so. yeah. I think their website said thirty thousand two hundred yeah. and something the other day, and yeah, obviously yeah. they're not all engineer jobs. But the, the the point here is, yeah, I, I try to convince them that look, if you're adopting these technologies, it's more how you implement them and the ideas that you're implementing that we've now adopted for the last decade around twelve factor DevOps and now you know SRE and all that. If you're doing that, new people won't go, oh, that's how you do it. You know, they, they will adopt to your flow pretty quickly. Because you're again, it's all in Git. They can all go look at it. The readmes are filled out. That you know that there's at least some right. basic documentation. <laughs> we block yep. on docs, <laughs> right? Yeah, I block yeah. on linting now. Like my sure. my yeah. thing exactly. of 2021. Yeah. If yeah, if I ever go out on a limb and do a thing on my own, like, like blocking on docs, will I swear to God that may be the company name. Yeah. Block on docs. Like, that's, that's actually block on docs. Go like, buy the domain. You said it on the internet, so you better go buy the domain. I know, right? Like, so now it's it's probably in the CNCF. Yeah, because yeah, there's now yeah, natural language parsers that will parse your doc and go, eh, not really cutting it. I mean, yeah. I, <laughs> have you heard of the Superliner project? Because that's my thing of 2021 with Superliner. No, we just did a study at Red Hat, and the the Kubelinter was like the number one open source tool that's being used right now for for security. Oh, Kubeval. Uh, yeah, I forget Kube? which one. It was one of the Kubelinting projects, but. Yeah, it's KubeVal or Kube Conform, I think is a newer one. KubeVal is Gareth, who was on the show a couple weeks ago. He invented that or created that project. And it's a little outdated. So we've had Datree, which is now 
I think probably the best one right now, they they were on the show like a month ago mm-hmm. and then Kube Conform, which is another open source project that basically is like a, a fork of Kube Eval. Anyway, sorry, I've, I've been into it recently, yeah. but linting, yeah. let me just tell you, if you're watching the show and you haven't heard me talk about it a thousand times, linting was always an optional thing and it was always up to the an individual developer to, to do it. But in recent years, linting and, you know, automation has gotten easier. We can do, we got Git commit hooks. We got all these things we can do. But GitHub released, and specifically an individual at GitHub, which I need to have on the show, released a project called Superlinter, which is it, it itself does not lint. It is a wrapper, specifically for GitHub Actions, around all the linters. So everyone, if you have a favorite linter, you commit it to the project. Oh, There's like 50 linters yeah, now. And it runs all the linters across your diffs in your PRs. And it's, you know, there's this much YAML to put it into every single one of your repos. And now GitHub just released reusable workflows. So for me, I put it in one work, one repo on its own and every other repo points to it. And so every PR on every repo is now linted on every language. And I haven't, I want to block. I, I do. I'm not to that point yet, but I'm very close to saying we're blocking on linting. Yes, you, you know, there's even a natural link language linter that will complain on your markdown if you use repo, not repository. But still, if your if your team is rotating constantly, to me, linting right. is the only way to keep the the code sane. Otherwise, you, you get twenty opinions. It, yeah. yeah, you well, have you to know, codify you, the knowledge. It's the only way you can survive. Everyone shifting left and all these things. Well, I mean, if you're really shifting left, like that's linting. I mean, in 2022 <laughs> cloud native, right? It's you're checking on the developer station, you're checking those configuration files and, and those deployment files and those manifests and so forth. So, yeah. Have you looked at um, like fuzzing and stuff? Like the test case minimization and fuzzers and like sort of injecting AI into the test phase of a build? No. There's this thing called half empty. And I've read it four or five times. And I understand if it's English, it's not a language, it's not the English I learned. But it's pretty slick. So my understanding of it, and it could be a completely wrong thing, is that in the test process, it's going to start doing fuzzing and it'll draw, it's kind of like chaos monkey in the test stage of your build, but localized to testing. So it'll do all sorts of crazy stuff to make sure you're te- like it's pretty, I have a customer that I worked with a little bit last year, who's big on this of it. They brought it up to me. I didn't, I didn't find it inside Google's from a customer. Is it as good as I am at breaking things accidentally? Let's not go crazy, John. <laughs> yeah. I don't think anything like that is, you're the Stradivarius of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen it broken with more style than with John. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a really cool idea. And just, the, it's just another angle of I can, and I've got customers that are injecting AI modeling into their build scenarios to sort of selenium times 10. Right. Where they do all sorts of, not only just run through all the tests they can think of, but start figuring out new tests they can run and then having the testing rig itself come up with some of those test cases. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was going to say my like, challenge. thing? Like, cust- I never thought the customer would do that. Right. Well, you can have a rough analog of a customer and, and not have 10,000 people pointing and clicking. Is this something that would improve test coverage just by implementing it? Maybe. I swear I don't understand this whole thing. Okay. Okay. Because that's my (laughs) core problem with customers. I'm a failed history major. This is well beyond my (laughs) CS background. But it's really cool. What little bit, like I kind of know in my gut, there's a lot of value sitting there. Don't quite comprehend what all the value is. 
All right, we have a question for Jamie. How do you see covert and cross-plane technologies in the market? I see them all over the market personally. And I know John, I know OpenShift is is real bullish on Kubevert these days with a couple of really big case studies. In my head, and again, it's it's all about convergence points, right? Like we are where we are now and and we've you've got auto scaling compute nodes and you've got, you know, kube scaling. At some point in the near future, we want to and for people that don't know, Kubevert is a virtual machine running inside a container. So the libvert process is running inside a container, which means I can now start and stop and query my virtual machine through the Kubernetes API. That idea of one scheduler to rule them all, we've been looking for in IT since we've had processes to isolate. Yep. And the Kubernetes scheduler is our best swing at it so far. Again, not putting any undue deference on the code itself, Right. But it's, it's a pluggable scheduler for workloads. The fewer of those I have in my infrastructure, the better my infrastructure is going to be. Kubevert has some limitations. Like if your VM, and it, it starts falling down in the corners, like with NFV, like network stuff. If my VM needs 37 different disks and 49 different NICs attached to it on 14 different networks and all that weird stuff, Kubevert gets hard fast because containers were designed to have a loop back and an ETH zero. Yeah. But it's, for most workloads, it works really well. I'm I love the idea of fewer schedulers in my data center. Yeah, that's that like with crossplane and some of these other tools that are, it's the, the you know the question is uh, what comes first, the infrastructure or the Kubernetes? Because we have we have yeah. self referencing problem, and I don't have a good answer for it. I, I you know I think the, the the teams I've seen implement it, they basically have special repos that are bootstrap repos that they they man. do infrastructure yeah. as code, but they. This is going to have to be run by an engineer manually on their machine or something right. just to right. kick Coming off. Out of that, like assuming that smoking hole scenario of I've got to start from nothing. You've got to have a seed and that seed. And if that seed is a hyper specialized Kubernetes instance that is designed to just spin up other stuff, that ain't a bad place to be. That's a pretty solid footprint to, for you to be able to rebuild from. At least my take it is. Red Hat's work, been working on a couple of technologies. So Kata containers is mm -hmm. another analog to Kubert. But the main difference is that Kata containers is really like you have a container image, but you want another level of isolation. Mm -hmm. So you go in and you, and you deploy a container, but it, it's essentially running in a VM as a container. And then yep. Kubert is really for running those kind of traditional virtual machines on the cluster. If you go in the cloud. Kondu's solution is similar to Kata where it's the, yeah. it's a container running in a VM, whereas Kubert is a VM running in a container. That's right. Yep. And with, with yeah, Kubert, it's a little bit more on-premise, I would say, focused. Because it once you get into the cloud, you do kind of get this, I've got a VM on a VM situation, which can hurt performance in some cases isn't supported, depending on the, on the architecture. But yep. yeah, we, we've done some, you know, if you work with a bank, it's the scale is ridiculous. You know, you go in and they're like, hey, well, we're going to do we just did a POC and you're like, okay, so like 10 nodes and they're like, oh, it's like 80,000. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, oh, it's kind of mind blowing sometimes. So we, so, uh, we nobody got, has we money like the people with money. They've got money. Yeah, it's, it's insane. I, so I think eventually there's still a lot of rough edges out there. There's a lot of like, uh, but fewer schedulers is better. Yeah. At the I end of the day. I mean, and it comes with some caveats, like you were saying, like 
how do I restart everything if I, everything was managed by a Kubernetes cluster? Right. Like you said, there's got to be some out of band something to get started with or right. to recover from. But data center bootstrap. Yeah. There's, you know, at some point there's a tape drive in the backseat of a Honda. You know, yeah. at some point that's got to live somewhere. All right. I've got, I know we're running long. I got two more questions for you. The first one enterprises tend to have centralized. For example, authentication authorization solutions for customers and employees. What would you advise enterprises moving forward in a Kubernetes world? Yeah, so those Have are one. extremely sticky technologies. <laughs> so, I mean, it's very, very rare that a customer moves off their authentication yeah. and authorization technology. So normally it's like you're going to integrate those. Maybe in some way you're caching them or doing some other thing in front of it to meet some of your specs. But those are just so sticky and they've iterated over sometimes it's like, Migrating off of those, it's, you know, migrating off a mainframe or, you know, an Oracle database from a 1990s app, right? It's just, it's a massive <laughs> thing and, and customers don't like to take on that kind of risk. So it's, yeah, it's normally just an integration point or, or building around it if you needed to extend it. Yeah. So this is where I'm going to plug Google Cloud. So I, I haven't really done it, but until now, but that's a place where we, it's really interesting. Like number one, you got to have one. And number two, it's got to do all the things, right? It's got to have OAuth and all the things that you're supposed to have a single sign on. And John's dead right. Once someone has picked an identity provider, having two is often not a discussion that anyone's willing to have. And even federating them is a very touchy discussion for those, yeah. for that people. And with good sense, like the people's logins are the most vulnerable spot in any infrastructure. Hooking up Azure AD to Google for single sign-on so people could log into GCP with their Azure AD credentials. I've, I did it twice in a week in February and it took less than 15 minutes each time. Mm. So it's gotten so silly easy. Right. There's one of the things I like about Google too, Jimmy, is like, if you are used to, if you are used to using Kubernetes, like the identity aspect, it just feels right. The yeah. users and groups, it's basically the same thing. Yep. in Google. So like the learning curve going to like Google for yep. authorization for, and, and those things, so it's, it's just, it's like, oh, it's a service account. <laughs> you know, it's you know, yeah, it's exactly. Like, it's like, built from the yeah. same. And then the second thing I'll say, so that's incredibly easy. Federating one cloud to the other, regardless of where your source of truth is, it is not a high barrier anymore. And everyone's got similar workflows. But second, one of the cool, like, because sort of the idea of Kubernetes RBAC was sort of birthed inside Google back in the day, or at least influenced by the, you know, Kubernetes is very heavily influenced by the way Google's infrastructure works. You can use a thing, and, and this is native to GKE, but you can do a thing called workload identity, where the RBAC role in the kube cluster maps directly to a service account. So the pod is running as the service account. And then in the various data services like cloud SQL, you can log in as an IM as a service account. So I can literally go from in the pod authenticate as the service account I'm running as against the database and not have a password anywhere. Okay. In the entire data flow, all of it is based off of the IM account, the, the service account that the pod is running as. Right incredibly effective tool. So I don't like, I don't even have to put like, I, there's no password anywhere. Yeah. Like that Copy incredibly that. effective. And it takes again, 20 minutes to set up, not high burden. Like it, the demo takes 20 minutes. 
It seems at some point that that sounds familiar to the like where we had IAM IAM roles at you know our AWS server and and or an entire VPC or something like that in the early days mm-hmm. and people didn't understand this stuff and they were making mistakes. Of course, I keep seeing them, but uh, they still I don't. Know. I, mean, I, I went <laughs> but, to the set of curiosity the other day and it was like there's 867 roles that you can apply in the IAM mm-hmm. uh, policy to on just wow. EC2. So no I mean, one knows them all. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I think. You know, back in the day, like that was a bad idea because anything could be on that server. There was often multiple things on that server. And now that we have very narrow scoped pods and containers, that seems like a better approach, especially considering the fact that if it's an environment variable password, then that password will work from anywhere and not just in that pod. And so we're right. now saying it's a, it's not really a password, but I see this uh, happening too on like even GitHub Actions recently, I can't even remember what protocol it was. It's escaping me. I need more coffee. But you can now use GitHub Actions with the clouds without needing a password, you know, a, a key mm-hmm. essentially. And I, I love that, that we're getting to, towards this, you know, passwordless future if that ever is really yeah. going to happen. Right, right. We all have already spent too many years of our lives managing passwords and API keys and stuff. And it just, it, it sucks. All right, last question. This is a doozy because it's actually one of our regulars coming up and saying, I need yeah, help troubleshooting bad. Red Hat on AKS. So basically, it it comes down to if you have latency coming out of a cluster, and it sounds like it's a web app, and even with a blank page, we're seeing 500 to a to 1500 millisecond lag. When you don't have access to the infrastructure, how do you troubleshoot? It's some sort of funky double encapsulation. The SDN's probably yeah. out of whack. So. So what, start with a troubleshooting container that's testing the connection closest and then keep working your way out? You yeah. Know, like you're, out, you're outside of like, the cluster, you're outside of that. Yeah, from the looks of it, he's probably, it looks like it's like a DIY thing. So the, like the, I would even look down at like, I would go as close down to the physical infrastructure of the network as you could. Start looking at, at MTUs and packet sizes and, and that kind of stuff is what it, I, yeah, it's a hundred per, almost a hundred. If it's not the SDN, then it's gotta be the API server. But I, it's, you know, I would look at the SDN really hard and dig as it's far down into it as you could. It really could be DNS. Like a lot of those things, especially if they're it's, hanging initially, you know, it's those initial lookups. I think the cache is set to zero for a lot of like default, the DNS yeah. cache for, for a lot of those things. And then, you know, so that's probably the biggest thing to look at. Jamie mentioned the encapsulation. That's pretty important. Networking problems can be tricky, of course, but I think MTU is a big one too, because it's the, you know, the thing with MTU is it's going to be set everywhere. So if it's yep. only set at some places, not other, you get a lot of packet fragmentation and things like that. So, yep. and, yeah. and cloud networks like that are not designed to, you know, reintegrate those packets at speed. It's not like, you know, cause it's all happening in software, but I would look at the SCA. Of course it could always be DNS because the world could always be DNS. Yeah, but my guess would be SD, the SDN's just malconfigured a little bit. Yeah, those are all great tips. Thank you for that. Yeah, I, I was going to suggest a troubleshooting container and you just yeah. run it. You start at the closest on the machine, on the pod itself, and then work your way all the way back one by one, mm-hmm. running it in various places. And Early you're right. I mean, yeah. yeah, I should look up, ironically, this week, I didn't know the default DNS TTL on core DNS. It's five seconds because... Okay. We all hate DNS and it's caching <laughs> in dynamic yeah, services. Yeah. So that's a thing that's funny because you would you would assume, well, no, 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 I've, I just queried it and then I queried it again. It was still slow. 
But mm-hmm. if it was five seconds and you were doing it in cluster, you had to do another lookup. Like we don't think yeah. of we think of time to I still I'm still like a fifteen minute time to live person when it comes to eighty six thousand four hundred maybe. Yeah. Yeah, copy paste, (laughs) copy paste, copy paste, and and we've we've ended up, and most people don't realize this. We've ended up in a a world where you know, like a minute is long, and you know, we have DNS caching everywhere already at the DNS level. So just you know, it could be DNS. It's all what is it? What does it we say? It's always DNS. Yeah. So use the IP to get around that, I guess, for the short term. Yeah, he's done. He's he's done some troubleshooting already. Double encapsulation of the SDN. I'll talk to our infrastructure network architect thing. Yeah, like if you're gonna have. And it's more prevalent like on VMware than it would be on AWS. But I don't know enough about AWS's networking these days. I've been off in my own little weird. But they're going to encapsulate it somewhere. And then your SDN, if it's a DIY cluster, unless you're using like, you know, VPC level networking, like we do in GKE, it's got to be encapsulated. Because it's a whole nother network. So you got 48 bytes going somewhere. And if that MTUs, you know, if you're sending full packets... And you're lopping off the header. Yeah, it's gonna be slow. Spoken like a true ops professional. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, a, like somebody with a lot of scar tissue. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I always tell everybody coming into the coming into this community and the DevOps. I was like, you know, honestly, if you were, if I were to look at you as an, a resume, I'm gonna probably ask you what's the difference between t, you know OCI layer one. I'm sorry, three and four. What's the difference between a switch and a router? Uh, yeah. Break down some IP subnets. All the same questions we were asking 30 years ago, because. Yeah. Just like you were saying, Docker training is still a thing. Network training is still a thing. And networking is more important now than ever because everything is network. Back in the day, we would put everything on one machine and it wouldn't matter. So for those so, of you out there listening and you're new to this stuff, networking right, trivia is trivia question. Yeah. The OCI layer mnemonic, do you know it from the top down or the bottom up? Bottom up, I think. Bottom up. Please do not throw yeah. sausage pizza away. Yeah, bottom up. Is there yeah. a top down? There's well, Yeah, it's something about... Prince somebody or Michael's in there somewhere. I, I forget what it is, but yeah, there's a top down one where you start. Wikipedia at will have the answer. Right? Yeah, always, always something. Uh, so I think somebody just mentioned it. Oh, oh yeah, um, Baker's just replying. Well, I know we all can't be here forever, and I really appreciate all the questions. Thank you two for both being here, John and Jamie. Again, from their book. Let's just plug that one more time. OpenShift. It's 2018. So fair warning for those of you looking for some OpenShift training may not be the most current thing out there. And, but these guys are on Twitter. So you, you have my permission to bug them with all of your OpenShift questions (laughs) and your Google Cloud questions. I I am selling Girl Scout cookies and I was told I'm not allowed to go home until I sell 10 boxes. So <laughs> well, you heard it here. So. Talk to me after, John. Talk to me. After. Yeah. So, are you? Only thing so, I girls don't confuse. So, <laughs> so cloud level midnight, cloud LVL midnight on Twitter. You can buy. Uh, I think I don't know if Girl Scout cookies are available on the internet, but you, they are now via yeah, Twitter. Yeah, exactly. I got a link. Yeah. You treat me. You want some Girl Scout cookies? I'll send you the link. So, well, thank you so much, gentlemen, for being here. Their Twitter handles, you all. Jay, we've got Jamie Duncan right there at Jamie Duncan at Cloud Level Midnight for John. And I'm Brett Fisher. Thank you all for being here. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll see you in the next episode. Mm